Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of the podcast of What is Global Health? My name is Madeline Hum, and on today's episode, we are going to talk with Dr. Patrick Catcher about the malaria epidemic and the new milestone to fighting malaria with the groundbreaking malaria vaccine that has been recently recommended by the World Health Organization. Our guest today, Dr. Catcher, is a public health physician with 30 years of experience in global health practice. He completed his clinical and residency training at the Mary Imogene Bassett Hospital in Johns Hopkins University and a community health fellowship at the University of Aloran in Nigeria. For much of his career, he was based at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, where he held leadership roles in the Malaria Branch and Center for Global Health, receiving the agency's highest service award. His research and scholarship has focused on experimental and observational epidemiology and health system studies that examines the effectiveness and equity of malaria in child health interventions, with an emphasis on real-world research that shapes policies and programs. He, can, he contributed to interdisciplinary research, establishing the efficacy of insecticide-treated nets in western Kenya and the feasibility and impact of routine use of artemisinin-based combination therapy in Tanzania. Dr. Catcher joined the faculty at the Columbia University's Mailman School of Public Health in 2018, where he coordinates implementation science partnerships with a focus on expanding access to quality global health programs and services. He now serves on the World Health Organization's Malaria Policy Advisory Group. Hello, Dr. Catcher. Thank you for joining me on this episode. We are happy to have you with us and hear more about your research and malaria expertise. To get us started, can you tell us how you became interested in studying the malaria epidemic and your journey from a practicing physician to a malaria expert and researcher? Sure. I grew up uh, just west of New York in a small town in northeastern Ohio. Um, interestingly, my the village I grew up in is on Mosquito Lake in northern Ohio, but I didn't have any ambitions of studying malaria growing up there. Uh, I, when I started my training in medical school, I had an opportunity very early on to learn about public health, and I, I had some good experiences working in a local health department uh, and kind of knew that's the kind of medicine I wanted to practice. So all throughout my medical school training, I found opportunities to, uh, to not only learn how to care for individual patients one at a time, but to develop my skills, understanding the health impacts that different diseases and conditions had on whole communities and populations. And one of those experiences was an opportunity to study community health at a medical school in West Africa, in Nigeria. And it really was there that my whole perspective uh, of, uh, of what I could do as a physician uh, uh, branched out from even more than, than, uh, than moving from clinical, individual clinical medicine to public health as a focus, um, really understanding that I could, could not only work at a community level, but at a global level was a real revelation for me. In my Nigerian medical school, malaria was overwhelmingly the most common cause of illness among children uh, and the, one of the leading causes of death. And so uh, it was really clear to me that that was a, an illness that no longer existed 
in the United States that we were able to eliminate uh, through aggressive uh, treatment and uh, health systems approaches, as well as through some uh, efforts to control the mosquitoes that spread it. And uh, after medical school, I had an opportunity to uh, enter a training program at the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, or CDC. And really, uh, from there, I spent uh, a number of years working on different health problems, uh, but always coming back to working on malaria and particularly working in African uh, communities. Africa, the African continent is where over 70% of all malaria illnesses occur. So we hear a lot about the statistics of how many children and adults have been infected with and died from malaria each year but it doesn't really give us insight to the everyday impact that malaria has on the ground. And you said that you have visited West Africa. So can you give us a little insight of what it is like for people living in a country where malaria is endemic and the impact that the disease has on people? Sure. Um, malaria is so common in some uh, communities that they people actually use the word malaria much in the same way that you or I might use the word flu. When we say, I've had the flu, it generally means that you've, uh, that you've felt ill for a couple of days and recovered spontaneously on your own. It doesn't necessarily mean that you went to the doctor or that you got a blood test that confirmed you had the influenza virus, for example. Um, in parts of Africa, very commonly people use, uh, describe uh, a short illness that they've had by saying, I had malaria, it kept me out of work or out of school for a couple of days. Um, but that really kind of hides the fact that while malaria can be a mild illness in people who have, have survived being infected with it repeatedly and reached uh, late childhood or adulthood, uh, malaria can be a devastating and uh, fatal disease in younger children when they're first exposed to it or after they've only experienced it once or twice in their life. Um, so while malaria may be mild in many uh, African school-aged children or adults, uh, it's, it comes, they've developed some immunity to it through prior exposure. And a great portion of children uh, die along the way and never reach that stage. Um, malaria, when I started my uh, training in 1990, uh, there were over 2 million malaria deaths every year, most of them in tropical Africa. And last year, there were fewer than 400,000 deaths worldwide. So we've made tremendous progress with some simple tools, but we haven't been able to fully eliminate it. Can you give us a background on those tools and strategies that are used to reduce malaria transmission and how these have progressed over the past two to three decades? The, the, one of the most important ways to deal with malaria is when people get sick with an illness with a fever, to make sure that they get tested and if it's positive, treated for malaria. So the idea of, of treating infections early 
when people get sick is still very important. It can help prevent that illness from progressing to severe or fatal form. And it can also, by curing that person's infection, you can reduce the risk that they'll transmit it on to other people. Um, so uh, diagnosing and treating malaria early is a really important way of controlling it. But just waiting until people get sick is often not enough. And so because we know malaria is transmitted by mosquitoes, uh, we can intervene to prevent contact between people and the mosquitoes that transmit malaria. There are different mosquitoes uh, in different parts of the world that carry the malaria parasite, and the mosquitoes that carry malaria uh, in different areas can behave differently. In Africa, particularly in rural Africa, the most efficient uh, malaria transmitting mosquitoes have adapted to bite indoors and late at night. I think that's probably they've learned that that's the best place to find sleeping human beings and a source of the, the blood meal that they take when they bite. Um, and because of that, uh, that uh, particular behavior, which, which has come about by adapting together alongside the mosquitoes, the parasites, and, and human communities adapting alongside one another for tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of years, um, we can target that behavior really specifically. And so tools like sleeping in a house that's fully screened or enclosed and air-conditioned uh, that keeps mosquitoes out uh, can be one uh, way of reducing mosquito contact with those night-biting mosquitoes. Or in areas where there's not electricity or power, uh, sleeping under a mosquito net, that especially one that's been treated with an insecticide that not only uh, keeps the mosquito from reaching the people sleeping under it, but uh, the insecticide can then kill them and, and prevent them uh, from going on and biting another person. Um, we also have other strategies, including providing malaria treatment drugs to people before they get sick, especially, this is especially useful for pregnant women or very young children who we know are at risk of, uh, of uh, or at high risk of malaria. Uh, it's not realistic to give them malaria drugs every day, but if we if we provide them with a long-acting uh, malaria drug uh, when they come for their uh, for their prenatal uh, visits to a clinic before they they deliver a baby, or for children when they come for their baby shots for other infectious diseases, we can give them a an anti-malarial drug. Um, and that can reduce the risk uh, of them developing an infection for about four to six weeks uh, after a dose of a long-lasting drug. And then finally, for, for decades, we haven't had a, a vaccine specifically for malaria. Um, but in recent years, we uh, have assembled the evidence that uh, a relatively new vaccine uh, can work 
uh, to prevent about 30 to 40% of malaria infections in African children. Um, that isn't as good as our COVID vaccines, which are 90% efficacious or even greater. But for malaria, which uh, is highly endemic, it's in, in parts of the world, it can make a big difference in, in survival. The tools that we use for malaria, like mosquito nets and uh, diagnosis and treatment, are, are each of them uh, imperfect in their own right. So much like we were using masks and distancing and immunizations to prevent COVID for the last couple of years, in Africa, we layer different interventions on top of each other. So we provide diagnosis and treatment when children are ill. We provide preventive drugs when women are pregnant or to small children in their first year of life. And we provide everybody with a mosquito net. And if we have this vaccine, we could add that on top uh, of those things and result in an even greater reduction in the burden of disease and death. So more on the vaccine. As of now, the World Health Organization is planning on giving the vaccine to children in sub-Saharan Africa, which can be life-changing for so many people and families. But many people have been waiting for a vaccine like this for years. Can you give us some background on why it took so long to develop a vaccine? Is it the science behind it, a financial burden, big pharma? Is there any specific reason on why the vaccine was in the research and development stage for so long? There's, a, there's an element of all of those things that you suggested. Uh, first of all, the malaria parasite is a, a complex organism. It's a, generally a one-celled organism that lives within our red blood cells or in some other cells within our body. Um, but it's much more complex. It has a lot more genetic material than a virus or a bacteria. Um, and so uh, the malaria parasite has uh, 13 chromosomes, uh, and uh, that's, you know, that's a or couple orders of magnitude more genetic material than a bacterium or a virus. And so what that allows the parasite to do is to invade our immune system uh, in some clever ways. Uh, the, there are four different species of malaria that are commonly transmitted in humans. The most serious is called Plasmodium falciparum. And we have some understanding of how that uh, parasite uh, manages to infect human cells. Um, but if we, as we've come to understand that more and more closely, each malaria parasite contains 50 different copies of the gene that codes for that protein that allows it to enter cells. And each of those 50 copies is slightly different than the other 49. So if, for example, our immune response recognizes a malaria parasite is infecting our cells, cells using one of these keys, the parasites can adapt by using one of the other 49 that they have. And so it's very hard for our immune system to, to fix on the parasite just because it it uh, can be very changeable. Um, 
The other thing is that because it lives within our own cells, sometimes uh, the immune system doesn't see the parasite uh, the same way as it would a bacteria or a virus that is circulating freely. Malaria parasites do circulate freely, but only briefly. Uh, and uh, at the early stages of infection, right after uh, someone's bitten by an infected mosquito. Um, and this vaccine actually takes advantage of that fact that the parasites are fewest in number and are maybe most vulnerable to the immune system at the initial stages of infection, right after the parasites have entered the bloodstream and, and when they set up uh, in the liver and before they've multiplied in the tens or hundreds of thousands or millions that are circulating in the bloodstream. So by targeting those early uh, pre-blood stages, this vaccine has a better chance of, of catching uh, and, uh, and uh, stopping a malaria infection from progressing. Um, but in addition to the scientific complexity, there are sort of geopolitical and economic challenges too. Because we eliminated malaria from uh, the United States, from much of, of uh, Europe uh, in the 20th century, there isn't a, a market for a malaria vaccine in most uh, high-income countries, except perhaps for a vaccine that could prevent malaria in travelers or military personnel deployed to endemic areas. Um, this vaccine is specifically uh, tested and uh, being developed to prevent malaria in African children. And that makes it harder for uh, drug companies to find the uh, financial incentive to develop uh, a, a vaccine for a disease that's, uh, that's uh, most prevalent in a part of the world where uh, individuals are unlikely to be able to pay for it. So in addition to the financial disincentives for international pharmaceutical companies, the ability to conduct high-quality uh, clinical uh, research trials in Africa uh, uh, and uh, parts of Asia and Latin America um, wasn't as well developed as it has been in North America and European countries. So getting uh, a, a high-quality uh, clinical research infrastructure established in Africa uh, and across uh, nine different countries took a fair amount of time. And then finally, I think uh, the, uh, the idea of uh, whether or not the international global community would be ready to pay for uh, a drug a vaccine for malaria has taken some time um, to, to come together. Um, very often, uh, you know, the, the global effort to provide vaccines for childhood infectious diseases 
has been a tremendous global health success really since the 1980s. Uh, but every time a new vaccine is, is uh, developed, it adds complexity to delivering uh, the existing program of vaccines. Sometimes they can be combined in the same injection with other uh, common vaccines, but other times the delivery schedule doesn't allow them to be given even in the same visit. And with this malaria vaccine, uh, it seems to require at least three, probably four doses. And three of those doses can be given at least at the same time. It's a separate injection, but at the same time as many of the other childhood vaccines. But the fourth dose really uh, requires that children come back for another visit when they're 18 months or two years of age. And so I think the challenge has been trying to figure out whether or not it would be possible to get enough children uh, uh, enough parents to bring their children back uh, for an additional visit. Um, and uh, what we've been able to see in, uh, in, in really just the last few months, uh, the World Health Organization looked at some data from three countries, Malawi, Kenya, and uh, Ghana, where they've been introducing this vaccine and trying to get a sense for how well it can be delivered and how well it seems to be working, as well as how safe it is when delivered uh, at scale. Uh, and they're beginning to show that at least for the first three doses, uh, it can be uh, effectively delivered and it seems to be relatively safe and have an impact on reducing malaria that's similar to what was seen in earlier experimental trials. So uh, I think the World Health Organization uh, and its advisors were ready to recommend implementation. Uh, even while we continue to collect data on how important that fourth dose uh, is and how effectively uh, we can motivate people to come back together. So a few more questions on the rollout of the vaccine. What is the plan for the rollout? Will it be condensed to certain countries or more spread out to cover large areas? If you could give us more insight into the details and logistics. Yeah, I think that's to be decided just yet. It will take time for the global, uh, for the manufacturing capacity to reach the global need for all children in Africa. So I think there is, uh, a an interest uh, on the part of the uh, global community uh, to make sure that those countries that participated in the initial trials uh, are able to introduce the vaccine. And certainly those uh, families who enrolled their children in the, uh, the most recent round of studies uh, and were randomized to the comparison group where they got uh, where they didn't get a malaria vaccine. Um, the priority will be providing them uh, those study participants uh, uh, with vaccine doses first. And there is definitely from the very start of the the study design uh, the capacity to produce and distribute 
that seems to those study participants has been kept in mind. Um, but I think it will be uh, a matter, it will have to be a phased expansion. Um, and I think that uh, one thing is relatively clear, and that is that uh, the, uh, the uh, global financing mechanism for vaccines called the called Gavi for the Global Vaccine, uh, the Global Alliance for Vaccines and Immunizations, uh, is looking at uh, what it would cost to procure the vaccine and what the supply uh, capabilities are going to be in the coming years. And they'll work with countries that apply to introduce it in an effort to make sure that uh, as we start to introduce it, we learn as much as we can about what are the most efficient ways of delivering it, uh, um, knowing that it will take uh, several years for the full-scale capacity production to, to be achieved. The company that has the ownership of the vaccine, uh, GlaxoSmithKline or GSK, has also entered into a partnership with an Indian pharmaceutical company to increase production not only uh, in the in northern countries but also in uh, southern malaria affected countries as well. Kind of related, but on a separate note. COVID-19 has passed many travel bans and restrictions, so getting help and resources to Africa has been difficult. So how will COVID-19 affect the malaria vaccine rollout and the malaria epidemic in general? Mm -hmm. We were certainly worried about this uh, when, uh, when COVID-19 uh, was first recognized as a global uh, pandemic. And from past experiences, when uh, the Ebola virus uh, outbreak occurred in West Africa and uh, restricted movement there and undermined confidence in the health systems in those countries, we saw a big impact on, on people's ability to come for malaria treatment and diagnosis. And we saw as many, uh, as many deaths from malaria as probably from Ebola over the course of that uh, infection. I think we were concerned that with uh, the uh, the um, uh, shutdowns and restricted movement, and uh, in some cases, uh, closing of uh, health facilities, except for uh, COVID in in some highly affected areas, that that was going to adversely affect malaria. And in actual fact. It did disrupt malaria uh, care and prevention services in a lot of countries, but that was relatively short-lived. And uh, I think the World Health Organization and its partners made a concerted effort to ensure that childhood immunization programs continued, that distribution of malaria uh, mosquito nets continued, that uh, uh, routine care and treatment for pregnant women, for small children, for people with febrile illnesses, that all of those continued. They were disrupted 
in many countries for three or four months in early 2020. Um, but in many places, they've, they've started to bounce back. Um, and and uh, the challenge will be is as the uh, as the COVID epidemic is felt, unless it is uh, unless the the progress of the COVID epidemic is slowed further in uh, malaria endemic countries by making COVID vaccines available for their health workforce and for their populations then there is the threat that, uh, that uh, widespread transmission of COVID could, could again disrupt those, those systems. Uh, our progress uh, against malaria over the last two decades is really impressive. We've saved more than 7 million lives even before uh, the vaccine is available but it's also very vulnerable progress that we've made. And so disrupting uh, our ability to get mosquito nets out there to get diagnostic tests and treatment drugs out there and get them to the people that need them uh, uh, is really vitally important. It's wonderful that we now have this malaria vaccine and that COVID-19 did not greatly disrupt the strategies and resources to reduce malaria. And thank you so much for being with us here today, Dr. Catcher. No, I'm really happy to talk with you and thank you so much for your interest. It was great to learn more about the malaria vaccine and we are excited to see the improvements in the, in the malaria epidemic as the vaccine begins to be delivered in Africa. If anyone is interested in learning more about the malaria epidemic and the vaccine, please visit the World Health Organization and the Center of Disease Control websites.